Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's you know, it's been a week. It's it's certainly been a week in January. Uh, days are short. It's cold outside. It's tough to tough to stay positive. Uh, when it's like that out there but you know we're doing our best we're doing our best here we got lots to talk about we have a guest this week sue foster who's a candidate in the 31st district we we had her primary opponent Derek pinwell last week so we are uh we're interviewing her we we have them both now i think we've got two great candidates in that race is very excited to talk to to miss foster um she's a a union leader from the AFSCME union, the, the union that represents the classified workers at JCPS, that includes like a lot of the, the, the lunch ladies and lunchmen and, and, you know, a lot of the anybody that works to, to get folks on and off the buses, a lot of the people that work at the central office, stuff like that. Anybody who's not a teacher and doesn't drive a bus for JCPS, those are mostly the people who are that union. So um, that's a very big union. I think she told us it was the biggest, uh, what did you say? It was like the biggest public sector union in uh, Kentucky or Indiana, I think is what she said. Uh, so it's a pretty big union. So um, she's she's got a lot of good experience to draw upon. She'd be a great person in, in Frankfurt. So definitely check that out. Um, if you live in District 31, listen to both of them. You know, definitely a good place to start uh, as you're figuring out who you want to support, how you want to get active in this race as we move forward. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. What about you, Jasmine? Yeah, I think that Democrats in District 31 31- have a tough choice in the primary absolutely they definitely do you know we'll talk a little bit about it one of the things we want to talk about first is the filing deadline has passed it's a little too bad that we've got two good candidates running in a couple of districts uh in our urban areas because there's a lot of rural districts and a lot of small cities that went without candidates this year so we'll talk a little bit about that um in addition we're going to talk about the uh the lawsuit that uh, is being brought uh about the the redistricting maps we'll be talking about that we are also going to be doing a very quick uh, legislative update with some quick hits and we're going to be talking about covid so without any further ado jasmine let's get into talking about the filing deadline which has come and gone and now we know by you know for now (laughs) uh, we'll get into the lawsuit in in a little bit but we know for now how many and which districts are going to be contested in the upcoming election so on the House side, Democrats are running candidates in 61 districts. That means that 39 districts are uncontested and are going to be held by Republicans no matter what. That's the worst number that we've seen since we've been doing this. Uh. Yeah, it's 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 bad. It's it's, uh, it's something that I was disappointed about. Uh, it's something that's not great. Um, but we'll get into uh, the fallout of what that means and also talk a little bit about why that might have happened this time around. So, Jasmine, we talked a little bit about how small cities really got split up in redistricting, and it looks like the response to the Democrats in some of the lar- large or some of the smaller cities was just not to run anybody. Um, so, nobody in none of uh, nobody in any of the three Paducah districts, neither of the Ashland districts, one of the Richmond districts, the Western Bowling Green district, the second Owensboro district, the Shelbyville district, and one of the districts in Louisville, and well, I think one of the districts that includes part of Fayette County have no Democratic candidate. So many of the districts in this map are going to be really hard for Democrats. In fact, I would say, you know, which of the seats uh, that we don't have a candidate running in, would they be best poised to win? I wouldn't favor Democrats in any of the seats 
that they're not running. I, I would say that that would be very, very difficult for Democrats to win any of the areas that they are actually aren't running. But running nobody in them is pretty disappointing. You know, giving citizens a choice and starting the long process of organizing has to begin sometime, but I guess it's going to have to be next cycle. So there's a bunch of places where Democrats, you know, are going to have to start working, working hard if we want to win. And without any candidates, it's going to be tough, tough to do that. 16 seats in the House are going to have a contested Democratic primary. Several include incumbent Democrats who are receiving a challenge. Tom Birch, who I believe is in his 90s, uh, he's being challenged by Daniel Grossberg and Neil Turpin in the 30th in Louisville. Josie Raymond and Mary Lou Marzian are both filed right now to run. And right now they're running alongside Joseph, uh, Joshua Crowder and Daryl Young in the 41st. I'm not exactly sure how that works because I have read a few things that says that they are not you know, filed to run in the right, and that they may not live in those districts. I'm not exactly sure what's going on there. They may withdraw, but we do at least have Josie Raymond and Mary Lou Marzian currently filed, uh, and we have those other two filed currently in the 41st in Louisville. Pam Stevenson is being challenged by Robert Bell in Louisville. We talked about Robert Bell recently because he uh, was running, or he was trying to get the uh, the special election nomination for what was then the 42nd, I believe, um, Reginald Meeks's old district. But now he's running against Pam Stevenson. Joni Jenkins uh, actually dropped out today. In my notes, it says she's being challenged by Beverly Chester Burton, uh, but she actually dropped out, so that's not going to be a contested primary. And uh, Susan Westrom is being challenged by Chad All and Justin Bramhall, and that's a district in Lexington. So all of the open seats in Louisville and Lexington are going to have primaries as well. So in the 31st district, Derek Pinwell and Sue Foster are running against each other. We just interviewed Sue Foster for this episode, and, and Derek Pinwell was our most recent episode prior to this one. And in the 34th district, Jonathan Lowe and Sarah Stalker are running. And then Jeff Kinder and Layman Swan are running in the 93rd, which is a new district in Lexington. So you know, we're going to have new folks in those districts, and uh, we're going to have a primary on the Democratic side to see who they most likely will be. Those are pretty Democratic seats, all three of them. On the Republican side, 19 House Republicans have primary challenges. So Stephen Rudy, Richard Heath, Walker Thomas, Samara Heverin, Brandon Reed, Chad McCoy, Ken Upchurch, Kim King, Speaker David Osborne, Sal Santoro, Savannah Maddox, Phil Pratt, Kim Moser, Ed Massey, Adam Koenig, Shane Baker, Tom Smith, Bill Wesley, and Danny Bentley all are being challenged in the Republican primary for their seats. And a lot of those seats don't have Democratic competition, so those seats will be decided in the primary. In addition, incumbents Norman Kirk McCormick and Bobby McCool are running against each other, and Jim Gooch and Lynn Beckler are running against each other in their primary, which is mostly in the Owensboro area. On the Senate side, Democrats are running candidates in 10 districts, including incumbents Robin Webb and Karen Berg. So <clears throat> senators actually are running eight people who do not have a seat, which isn't too bad. Uh, I, I, you know, it could have been worse. And I think that on the Senate side, they always have a little bit harder time to recruit candidates than on the House side, or at least that's been the truth in the past. Republicans are only leaving 11 seats uncontested in the general election in the House all of which are in either Louisville or Lexington. So Republicans definitely, I, I, I think that this points to the fact that they <laughs> made use of the fact that they had the maps before the Democrats and were able to recruit to it because they have nearly every district um, with a candidate yeah. in it. So Jasmine, at the end of the day, I think this is the most disappointing filing deadline, um, you know, since uh, I've really been paying attention in, in Kentucky as a Democrat. 
I, I think redistricting definitely played some part with, with several folks getting moved around. I mean, if you think about it from um, on the Senate side, right, you had Karen Berg, who lives in Jefferson County, but represents, you know, Crescent Hill, and then all of Oldham County. Now, Karen Berg's district is just in Jefferson County, and uh, Oldham County has its own district. So, you know, since the beginning of January, the Senate recruiters have to like run around trying to find somebody to run in that district, which is a difficult challenge. Um, you know, you, you have to prep people that it's a long process to kind of recruit somebody, especially in an area where it will be difficult for them to win. Uh, in addition, you know, what's the pitch for Democrats who are trying to get people to run for office? You know, if you run, you're probably going to lose this time. It's 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 all signs kind of point to the fact that the election is going to be pretty bad for Democrats in 2022 with the unpopularity of a Democratic president, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, once you win, you know, if you manage to pull it out and, and do win, you're going to go into a super minority and you're really not going to be able to pass many bills. So th- that's a tough pitch, <laughs> I think. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do. Um, you know, and, and like I said, there aren't really that many seats that Democrats failed to recruit where they would have stood a big chance to win. But, you know, the thing is, the lack of recruitment is a serious problem. And, and even with all of these headwinds, we as Democrats have got to find a better way um, to improve the pitch, to talk about why it's important to be a Democratic representative, what you're able to do as a Democratic representative, even if you're not able to get a lot of bills advanced, and why it's worth running even if you might lose, just to give people a choice. You know, to represent your principles, there's a lot of ways to, to frame this that's a lot more positive than the way I just did it. So, you know, it is pretty disappointing, but at the same time, uh, you know, I'm not going to say fully understandable, but I understand it's very difficult to recruit people in this environment. Um, I certainly wish it had gone better. Jasmine, any thoughts from you? It's really hard to recruit people already, and it's even harder when you didn't know which district you lived in. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I lived in a Republican Senate district and a Republican House district before. Um, Now I live in a Democratic House district and I got a new Republican senator where there's no Democrat that's filed a challenge. And I I knew about that a couple weeks ago, you know, and so it's hard. It's hard to to find people to fill some of these spots. And so that's clearly a huge disadvantage, but mm-hmm. I I hope that Democrats are able to do something. Yeah. <laughs> like that people are willing to step up and I don't I don't know. I think we we just have to figure out the only way to not be in the super minority is to re- recruit people to run and and make changes in our party and do better with messaging. You know, I don't know. I, it is really disappointing, but we also had a really big disadvantage this year. Yeah. One of the things that I think, you know, one way that I know that at least some people are, are, are facing this, uh, you know, I, I tweeted a picture of the map and kind of expressed a little bit of disappointment and the chair of the Warren County Democratic Party responded and, and kind of said, you know, we're really focused in on local races right now. And, you know, they're not going to change the districts for, you know, the Warren County commissioners. Those are pretty much set. Like, those are elected statewide. And and, and she had said, you know, we're, we're trying to run people for, for those districts or for, for those offices that are local. And, you know, maybe it is a little bit more valuable to get somebody an experience running uh, for office, maybe get them into a seat that they, they're a little bit more able to win. 
And then if they win that, maybe they can run for that Western Bowling Green seat uh, after after next year. What maybe that's a little bit more valuable. And, and you know, when you're facing these headwinds, and you know, I, I'm pretty sure that the 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 Warren County Democratic Party had no idea that Patty Minner's seat was going to get split in two. They probably had an idea that it was going to get split in two, but how was not a question they knew how to answer right away. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's um, that that's kind of you know one way to look at it. And I do that do know that some of the county parties are a little bit more organized uh than they have been in the past so you know uh, it is disappointing it is something to build on though um and you know as i think today's interview and last week's interview and several of the interviews that we're going to have in the in the coming weeks we have a lot of good candidates so it's not like we're going to be not able to run anybody so uh yeah Yeah, i I would say too many good candidates and in the same district. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out that all the good Democrats, uh, yeah, a, a lot of the Democrats who are willing to step up and run um, live in a lot of the same places. So, all right, Jasmine, that's that's the filing deadline. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about redistricting? All right. So last Thursday, the day after we recorded our show, the Kentucky Democratic Party filed a lawsuit in Franklin Circuit Court challenging the maps drawn by the GOP. Um, so the case is assigned to Judge Wingate. So as we've talked about several times on the show before, there are two circuit court judges in Franklin Circuit Court. Um, one is Judge Shepard and the other is Judge Wingate. Um, Joshua Douglas, who is a professor at UK Law and he's an election law scholar, um, he said that he thought that Shepard would be the more favorable judge in this case. Um, I really don't have a read on whether that's the case, but that's what he said, and and I tend to trust him on election law matters, so there's that for what it's worth. But the lawsuit, um, it, it raises like two challenges. So first, it challenges the partisan gerrymandering of the maps. They say that the maps violate sections 1, 2, 3, and 6 of the Kentucky Constitution. And so they argue that the maps arbitrarily deny citizens the right to a free and equal election, free expression, and free association. So section 6 of the Kentucky Constitution is a section that says that all elections shall be free and equal. And sections one, two, and three are like free association and equal protection. So these are all, this lawsuit is based on the state. It's a state constitutional challenge. It's not a federal constitutional challenge. It's based on the state constitution. The second challenge is based on section 33 of the Kentucky constitution. Um, The complaint argues that it violates, that the maps violate section 33 by excessively and unnecessarily splitting counties into multiple districts without a legitimate purpose and impermissibly attaching portions of split counties to others more times than is necessary to achieve districts of roughly equal size. So kind of like our, our more recent case on redistricting is LRC versus Fisher from 2012. And in that case, the Supreme Court discussed um, the dual mandates of Section 33 in the Kentucky Constitution. And the dual mandates are maintaining both population equality and county integrity. And so a reapportionment plan satisfies these mandates by one, 
maintaining a population variation that doesn't see exceed the ideal legislative district of um, minus 5% to plus 5%, and two, dividing the fewest counties possible. And so in that case, in 2012, the Kentucky Supreme Court held that the maps did not divide the fewest number of counties possible and failed to achieve that plus or minus 5% rule for population equality. So the plan violated Section 33 of the Kentucky Constitution. Um, So the suit that we have now, they're not alleging that they violated like the plus or minus 5% rule or didn't divide the fewest counties possible. What this lawsuit is saying is that it it did do the minimum number of county splits possible but it split them excessively. So um, the argument is that it split the counties 80 times when the House Bill 191, which was the Democrats' proposal, only split them 60 times. And so it was excessive splitting is the argument. Um, And that's the argument for House Bill 2. So if, if you'll remember... The Senate maps went into effect without being signed into law. So this lawsuit is based on House Bill 2, which are the House maps, and then Senate Bill 3, which are the congressional districts. And the lawsuit specifically mentions that odd first district that now goes from, you know, far western Kentucky all the way up to Frankfurt. Um, So really, you know, in this lawsuit, the... The argument's probably not as strong as the 2012 maps, um, but but they're trying something different, arguing that, yes, you split the fewest counties possible, but you split them too much when you could have split them less. Yeah, I, I mean, Jasmine, now let me, let me phrase it to you in this way, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong there. So they, when you say it's not as strong as the 2012, uh, you know, case, are you saying that, you know, it isn't as strong a case or it's not actually depending on the 2012 precedent. So like in 2012, when the Supreme court ruled on LRC versus Fisher, like there, they, they had to make like a ruling on this where they basically said, okay, yeah, no, this is bad because of how many time they divided counties. And now we have that as, you know, case law precedent that they can depend upon. And, you know, they drew a map that followed the rules set down in 2012, but again here in 2022, the uh, the the Democrats are now suing to say, okay, well, you need to make another new ruling about how many times those counties right. were split. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They're just making a different argument. They're saying, okay, you said this in Fisher, and they did divide the fewest counties possible. The minimum number was 23 county splits, but they they split them up excessively yeah and split them too many ways and right. so the lawsuit alleges that 13 counties were split more than necessary and also that 45 of the 100 districts have unnecessary county spillovers yeah yeah and so that's the argument with house bill 2 that they're making here so um it's not that it it violates these strict mandates that were required by LRC versus Fisher, it's kind of a different argument that you did it excessively. This isn't, 
this violates the spirit of <laughs> of it. And then also the argument that um, it violates sections one, two, three, and six of the Kentucky Constitution. Yeah, and it in in its partisan gerrymandering and. There, there have been suits in other, um, other states where this has been successful based on state constitutional arguments. And so, yeah, um, that's why they've raised it this way. Um, and, you know, I think that we have at least three conservative justices who would probably not... I think this is headed to the Kentucky Supreme Court, potentially. And I think we have three conservative justices who would probably say this is not partisan gerrymandering, no constitutional violations. But, um, you know, I'm not really sure what the others would do. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the states that you, you know, you mentioned other states have, uh, you know, seen these challenges be successful. One of them is Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania actually... They sh- the constitutions of Kentucky and Pennsylvania are actually written around the same time and include a lot of the same language. So you know, right. it's it's not exactly you know it's not the same document, but it but it's very close. Um, and you know that's that is almost in my mind almost precedent for for something like this. I don't want to get anybody's hopes up. I think it's unlikely that the maps get thrown out. Um, but yeah, you know, I kind of yeah think so too but but you know the thing is like it's not like these arguments don't exist the arguments are certainly out there i think they make sense i think it's very clearly partisan gerrymandering i just think it's going to be difficult um to get you know five justices from the kentucky supreme court to agree to that because of the the way that the state is skewed now the lawyers may be able to do that and uh, i hope they do because i think that that would be a carriage of justice but um you know we will we will see all right, Jasmine, thank you for going through that with us uh, and talking to us about ways that 13 counties can be cut up in, uh, <laughs> in such a way uh, that it reduces the number of slits or, or whatever. Like that, uh, that's, uh, it's complicated to do in an audio format, uh, but hopefully it came through uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to do in an audio format. In, in the brief, they actually have pictures and diagrams that are really helpful that oh. are hard for me to describe here that make it more effective <laughs> very interesting they drew some pictures for us very nice okay i'll have to check that out all right jasmine let's do a COVID update so omicron continues to crush kentucky um cases are higher than they've ever been however it doesn't appear that it does appear that we are at the top of the curve in terms of cases and you know our death rate really has, hasn't moved in the past month so in our urban areas cases seem to be starting to come down a little bit um, Louisville and Lexington are at or near about 250 cases per 100,000, which is, you know, 10 times the number that you need to go into that red area. But it's but it's lower than it was just a couple weeks ago. Um, so so we are seeing cases kind of kind of start to come down um, in our urban areas. Louisville saw cases, you know, fall to 14,000 last week, which is the third highest week of all time. But the, the number one and number two highest weeks of all time were the two weeks preceding last week. So we are seeing cases come down. Um, from 16,000 to 14,000 last week. And I think we're going to continue to see that. Lexington, Lexington's cases have kind of bounced around. They've been up. They've been down. Um, but but they don't seem to be going up very much and are likely uh, going to start coming down again soon. 
In Northern Kentucky, case rates in Kenton and Campbell have fallen below 200 cases per 100,000, and Boone is at 217, and of course both of those were um, nearing 250 at different points in the most recent weeks. But several counties across the state are seeing astronomical case numbers. Muhlenberg, McCracken, and Hopkins counties in western Kentucky are above 400 cases per 100,000 people. Simpson Graves, Ohio, Davies, Henderson, Webster, Nelson, Shelby, Whitley, Harlan, and a few others are above 300 cases per 100,000 people. And more than a dozen counties are above 200. So it seems like Omicron, which hit urban centers very hard very uh, at the very beginning, has now pretty much spread to the rural areas, which are seeing that same rise that we saw in urban areas at the beginning of the month. So even though cases are still very, very high in urban areas, they're starting to come down, which is probably why we're at our all-time high. Urban areas are probably going to keep coming down and keep coming down, and uh, but... In our rural areas, they are going to stay going up. So, you know, pay attention to this. Depending on where you live, um, what you need to do, and how you need to stay safe, um, that, that those are important dynamics that you need to pay attention to. Um, just because the state numbers are going down doesn't necessarily mean um, that, you know, your county or your part of the state is, is safer uh, and than it was in the past week. And, you know, if you're in an urban area, you're actually probably better off this week than you were about three or four weeks ago, even though cases are still probably at the very highest that they've ever been. So, so that's kind of where we're at in terms of total case rates. One thing that I have started to observe is we're now a month into our Omicron increase, and the deaths per day have really not changed substantially since the start of the year, which is good. At this point, whenever you see a big rise in cases, you know, the Delta surge, the original COVID surge, about a month into it is when you start seeing death rates start to go up, and we have not yet seen that. You know, we're going to keep tracking it. We're going to start keep looking to see if we start seeing that. Um, but right now, deaths have not started to go up. Our overall hospitalization rate is now almost exactly where it was at the peak of the Delta wave. 2,595 Kentuckians are in the hospital on average with COVID-19, and the peak in September was 2,616, so very, very close to exactly the same number. It's likely that if that even if cases are cresting and are going to start coming down soon, hospitalizations may continue to rise a little bit because hospitalizations do lag cases by a little bit. Our ICU utilization is still about where the peak of the winter surge from the original COVID was. So, you know, uh, 441 patients are using the ICU versus 430 back in January of 2021. So we're just slightly above where we were last winter. The Delta peak was 635. So we are still far below ICU usage at the at, in the middle of Delta. So deaths, hospitalization, and ICU usage compared to case rates are all consistent with the fact that Omicron is a milder variant than Delta. However, so many people have COVID right now that our resources are being taxed. And, you know, a certain number of people are going to get really sick with COVID, even if it's Omicron. And the thing is, uh, we have so many people with Omicron um, that we are seeing the same amount of people in the hospital now than we did uh, during during the Delta surge. Vaccinations, they do continue. Uh, Kentucky is now at about 64.4% with one vaccination and 55.5% with two, along with 23% of our state with a booster. Boosters are really lagging uh, among younger populations. I think, uh, you know, well more than half, like I think 55% of people 65 and older have a booster. So more than half. And that's, uh, of course, you want to see much higher. I think like 95% of people 65 and older are vaccinated. Um, and, and we need to get that number. Uh, we need to get it to that number for boosters. But we will, we will, of course, see that as it moves along.
we are probably at about the peak for cases right now. However, one thing to remember about being at the peak is that's when half of the people who are going to get it have gotten it. On the way back down, the second half of people are going to get it. So that is still a lot of people who have yet to get COVID. Um, Just because cases are going down does not mean it's safe. Um, It will be safe when cases are low. And that is not where we are. So be cautious, take care, do what you need to uh, figure out a way to live your life in the safest and healthiest way possible. Any COVID uh, updates for us this week, Jasmine? I don't think so. Good. I, I still haven't got it as far as I know. <laughs> I had to take a test for a merge last weekend. It was COVID free. Good. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing my best to stay out there COVID free. You know, I'm I'm heading in. You know, we just talked about how you know urban areas are starting to feel a little bit safer. Rural areas are really starting to, to jump up. Uh, and we sent my daughter who had a COVID exposure at daycare to to Ashland. Of course, you know, back into the teeth of where it's getting worse <laughs> and worse. So you know, that's that's how we're living our lives right now. So we just got to do what we can to stay safe. Yeah, I I don't think I got it. I, I was a little sick a couple weeks ago, and I took a couple rapid tests did not show up with it. My mom's better. Everybody I knew that had it had Omicron has gotten better, so that's good. Um, so yeah, everybody stay safe out there. Before we get out of here, a couple of quick hits, including a legislative update. Um, you know, the, the session is ongoing. They haven't really passed anything through both chambers, but uh, lots of legislation is, is, an, is starting to pass in individual chambers. The Senate passed a bill, which actually, uh, this was the, the biggest bill from the Senate that I, I, I thought. So the Senate passed a bill that restricted the number of Medicaid MCOs to three. So right now there's six. We've talked about Medicaid MCOs several times in the past, but the Medicaid program is operated by MCOs who basically contract with the state and then patients, people who are eligible for Medicaid, basically select from an MCO on the list and can you know take you know use the use the insurance of their choice. That's tough for doctors and, and providers because they have to have somebody that can bill all six of these providers, and there's not like a universal way <laughs> to interact with these payers. So it is a little bit of a hassle um, for for providers. And you know, uh, we we tried to reduce the number of MCOs recently when Andy Bashir took over uh, office, but that ended up getting us uh, in hot water, getting us in a lawsuit. And instead of having just three, I think we were going for four at the time, and uh, the Two groups sued, and now we have six. So, you know, we'll see if this bill moves on to the House um, and, and what happens to it there. But that is definitely something to be tracking, especially if you are a healthcare policy person in Kentucky. Several bills about education are making their way through the House, including one bill which require that school boards have 15 minutes on their agenda for public comment. Um, that bill actually passed committee, but it was, I think it was more controversial than I expected it to be. I think several Republican members, um, you know, this is a bill which I think was brought forward because of like CRT type stuff and wanting to make sure that, uh, you know, very conservative people could have their voice heard uh, at the school board. That that's basically who gets their voice heard at the school board level um, during these public comment periods more than often. We saw that quite a bit over the summer uh, here in Louisville. Um, but I, the thing is, I, I think uh, one of the things I do know about the House Education Committee is that a lot of those people used to be on school boards. That's kind of who ends up on the, the House Education Committee. And uh, those people uh, know who make public comments. Uh, and uh, they, they think that you know uh, making this mandatory might not necessarily be the best thing to do. 
Um, so anyways, we'll see what happens if that gets to the floor, if that gets passed in the House or in the Senate. We'll be paying attention as we move along. Um, hopefully by next week, uh, we have a couple more bills that we can talk about that have made their way all the way through the legislature. But we do have one other quick hit that we want to mention. So attorneys at the Louisville Metro Public Defender's Office have voted to unionize. So Jasmine, that means you're now a member of a union. So congratulations for that. The, the members voted 32 to 5 in favor of unionizing, so it uh, wasn't close. Um, I think a lot of people who have been watching this, uh, you know, there have been previous unionization pushes at the PD's office, and uh, most, you know, all of them up until now have been unsuccessful. So I think a lot of people were wondering if it, it was going to pass, but it wasn't close. It was a, a huge, hugely in favor of unionizing. They plan to negotiate for changes that they believe will ensure long-term success of the office and better outcomes for their clients. The attorneys will be unionizing with the IBW, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, and that's Local Chapter 369. So great news, I think, for you, Jasmine, for all the public defenders. And, you know... Most jobs like the one that you do uh, and other jobs who, you know, are a calling that people do because, you know, they feel the need to do that kind of work, they turn into bad jobs because, you know, they play on people's guilt and people's feelings. And um, the people who do this work deserve to have a good job, deserve to have fair pay, deserve to have the type of uh, time away from their job that is healthy and allows them to do a good job when they're at it. Um, and I'm really glad to see uh, that the PD's office has taken this step. Uh, you know, I was cheering for you guys the whole time. Uh, so I am very glad as an outside observer to see that this happened. Thanks, Robert. I'm not going to add any comment. <laughs> okay, okay. Very good, very good. All right. Well, I... It was me. I'm the one who said all of that. Uh, there you go. All right, let's get to our interview with Sue Foster. Hello there. Do you follow politics? Of course you do. That's why you're listening to this podcast. So I invite you to add Forward Kentucky to your politics sources. Forward Kentucky is an organization devoted to covering Kentucky politics, policy, and politicians. Our tagline is Objective News, Effective Policy, and progressive commentary. We've got lots of ways for you to keep up, from the website itself, to our podcasts, to our posts on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Reddit, to our YouTube and TikTok channels. And we've got a newsletter you can get for free. Just go to forwardky.com to learn more and to sign up. Forward Kentucky, the progressive voice for Kentucky politics. Sue Foster is a Democratic candidate for House District 31 in Louisville. She is the president of the Jefferson County Association for Education Support Personnel, Local 4011, and AFSCME Union, supporting workers within JCPS. She is also a member of the Kentucky Public Pension Coalition and a member of the Greater Louisville Labor Council. This is her first run for public office. So, Sue Foster, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's an honor to be here tonight. Yeah, we're very excited to have you. Jasmine, I'm sad that you passed up the opportunity to say, ask me, one of my favorite words in the English language. So... Uh, yeah, uh, that, that is, uh, that is Miss Foster. So, uh, you know, uh, thank you for joining us, but you know, just Kentucky Democrats, they're in a small caucus, uh, in, in the house of representatives. And, you know, I, it's no, it's no, it's, it's no secret that they have a hard time getting much of their agenda advanced or, uh, you know, passed or anything like that. So tell us a little bit why you decided to run for the house and, you know, what you hope to accomplish 
accomplish if you get there? You know, I've had a compassion for uh, politics and and state and local government and federal government for years. Ever since in high, you know, I was in high school, I've always had a love for you know the and and, and continued hunger to learn more and and play a larger role in being a part of the process that molds our our day to day existence within our state and our nation. So uh, in 2017, I found myself sitting in Frankfurt, and uh, that fire was rekindled when I had the opportunity to to witness firsthand the uh, attacks on labor by our state government, to march in the halls and the foyers with uh, my brothers and sisters in labor during the passing of the right to work bill that was intended to destroy and silence Kentucky's working men and women. Then and again, I saw a vicious attack uh, in 2018 that was waged on state employees, educators, our frontline workers, and retirees regarding their pension. So on August the 2nd, 2018, I stood on the front porch of the Kentucky Education Association uh, and delivered a speech to over 13,000 educators, firefighters, police officers, social workers, state office employees, parents, students, concerned citizens, and supporting legislators about the injustices that were being leveled against Kentucky public servants at that time. And it's through those firsthand experiences and the many uh, others in our state capitol and the annex as well, where you know you witness firsthand the innermost agony and just the unnecessary suffering of those around you who for years that has been brought on by bills it's been written on, written, voted on, and passed without any uh, real concern for the voices of their constituents. Yeah, it, it would be a big deal, of course, uh, as as a few people have already, to go from you know making those speeches in front of uh, large groups or on the steps of the Capitol to actually making them on the floor of the legislature for sure. So that's a. Uh, Certainly, something that that seems seems like a, a a good step for somebody like you to make. So, we sit there. We know the caucus numbers are small. You know that's that's in front of us all. But I guarantee you, it's because of the the voices of that small group that the majority that's sitting there right now is letting fear dictate their actions. You know, they're making hasty decisions, which I believe will come back to bite them in the end. And that's never so evident in the redistricting of Kentucky voters without finding value in the input of, of their constituents. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So let's let's talk a little bit about that because you because you filed to run in District 31 here. Um, but under you know under the new maps, those are the new maps you're filed in, in District 31. But but those maps are headed to court. Uh, we're going to be talking about that in the other part of our episode today. Um, and, and you know it, it could be the case that they're thrown out before before the election. I, I believe that happened uh, back in in 2012, um, which it's not outside the realm of possibility. So you know, tell us what it's like running in this environment and and what it is uh, when you're running for office. You think you might know your district, but it, but it could absolutely be something different before it's all said and done. You know. I've been around long enough and in Frankfurt enough and witnessed how many, how things actually do work and how often that, you know, the, the behind the closed doors uh, events take place in Frankfurt. I was one of those who was actually uh, able to make my way into the lock conference room in March of 2018 as the house of representatives representative from district 36 presented what will forever be known as the sewer bill house bill 151. I also fully understand that the that the U.S. Census, by the Constitution, we and by the Constitution, we should expect redistricting of our, our voting boundary lines. 
under democracy. We would hope that the redistricting of these boundary lines would be done in the open with genuine respect and, and consideration and collaboration for um, every leg legislator who sits in the elected seats within both the Senate and the House. But also we would, we would think of ways to include the con constituents who, um, who elected you know, everyone, them to be their voice. And unfortunately that did not happen. Uh, as for myself, I've lived in District 31 for close to two decades. This has been my home, my community, and the home of my daughter, son-in-law, and grandchildren for many years. I'm fortunate that the boundary changes did not bring me to my, you know, bring, did not bring me to my district, but rather I made that choice myself many years ago. Uh, I'll add that the appearance of the new boundary lines does lean strongly toward gerrymandering. I've been trying to figure out which one of the two principal tactics of gerrymandering uh, to categorize this under. It's either crackling, which we all know is the diluting the uh, voting power of the opposing party supporters, or packing, which is concentrating the opposing party's um, voting power in one district. In all honesty, I think we're seeing both with these newly drawn lines, especially in our West End and the central communities here in, in Jefferson County. Yeah, we're already seeing a little bit of fallout from that with uh, Representative Jenkins deciding to, to, to leave office, uh, I think, to the, the term to uh, allow a third uh, majority minority district to have a, a, a black um, representative. So, you know, we're already seeing a little bit of that uh, happen as uh, as as we go along here. I, I did want to ask one other follow-up question here about the redistricting, and that's that, you know, I don't know how long um, you had been thinking about running for this office, but if you were in 31 before, uh, you know, you might not have necessarily been expecting a primary, but you find one, uh, find yourself with one on your hands. Uh, and we did talk to your primary opponent uh, last week, and so I'm just curious, uh, you know, your approach to, uh, you know, now you're going to have to win two elections, uh, one against a Democrat, and, and then if you win that one, one against a Republican. So so how are you approaching, you know, uh, doing having to do both of those things potentially in the next year? You know, it's, um, it's not surprising. As a union president uh, who represents close to 4,000 people, uh, employees of Jefferson County Public School, my feet's always been on the ground. And uh, so uh, whether I have a uh, opponent in the primary or not, which it appears that I, I do, I'm ready. I'm ready to get out there. I'm ready to meet. I'm ready to talk. You know, it's, 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 my district. I've lived here for a long time. These are my neighbors, my co-workers. We have, uh, I think, approximately nine schools, uh, public schools, JCPS schools that set in District 31. You know, I already know the majority of those employees. I work with them on a regular basis, represent them. And I'm already their voice uh, through the school system and often the state. So I'm ready. Nothing really changes for me. I, I'm, I'm a hard worker. Um, and I give it my all regardless. Well, we wanted to talk about your role in Louisville's labor movement. Um, you obviously play a major role in it. And there are a few other labor leaders in the legislature, but few who have been leaders of a union recently. So tell us what kind of advocacy the labor movement needs in Frankfurt right now. Well, I think as the president of the law, I'm actually the president of the president, I'm sorry, of the largest ASME local in both Kentucky and Indiana. And believe me, in this role, I've witnessed the needs of Kentucky laborers on a day-to-day -day basis. There's a continued need for a strong voice for not only the men and women who've dedicated their lives to Kentucky, 
but also to those who are continuing that work and dedication every day and into the future with the new employees that will be coming down, you know, in the years to come. These workers have poured their hearts out and souls into building our cities and, and states from the ground to the greatness that we experience every day here. Uh, they provide safe buildings for Kentuckians to work in and for our children to learn in. Some wake up every morning heading to offices in local and state government and and they're diligent in meeting the needs, um, our needs, those of our neighbors, co-workers, small businesses, and, and anyone else that may have deadlines to meet and, and assistance with vital, you know, assistance with vital paperwork. They educate our kids. They keep our grocery stores open. They protect our communities and families. They build our roads and bridges. They care for our sick and are finding ways every day to make our cities and states safer and healthier by building and upgrading water systems that provide clean drinking uh, water and dedicate themselves to bring a part of rethinking and rebuilding Kentucky with renewable energy through solar, solar and clean energy jobs. So, you know, we need someone who's going to be the voice of the 45% of women who have either been forced to resign their jobs or take leaves due to, due to inadequate child care mm -hmm. uh, during this pandemic. And unfortunately, a large portion of this percentage can be found in um, our highest poverty-stricken areas here in Louisville and across Kentucky. The money's there, but the willingness and lack of vision is holding us back. We need employees, employers and employees to engage in creative uh, solutions and, and our sta state legislators to realize just how important this is to the growth of our communities and Kentucky families. Uh, we need to step up as a state and appreciate the work of those that's been that's helped build the Commonwealth and have now retired. You know, these state workers who've given so much to you and to my family and, and our neighbors uh, through our beautiful state park systems, by maintaining our roads, uh, providing clean communities and, and building safe bridges and, and protected our neighborhoods and the list could go on and on, deserve an affordable and sustainable life after retirement. You know, we've seen inflation rise by over 7% in the last 10 years, but they've not seen a cost of living raise in, in as many years and probably about two years beyond that. We can't allow ourselves to overlook the fact that they are, um, that they provide revenue to our state through sales tax. Uh, when we cripple their ability to spend, we're cutting much needed revenue for our own state as a whole. I can definitely hear your passion for labor advocacy. Um, so I'm really excited to see what you could do for the labor movement in Frankfurt. But you mentioned this at the top of the show, the landscape for labor, you know, really changed in a heartbeat in, in 2017 once the first legislative session under Republican control began. And, you know, as a leader of a union during that era, what can you tell us about how union organizing has changed in the past few years? You know, I think I can I can say that the intent, you know, with a surety that the intent by the GOP was to destroy the labor movement here in Kentucky. But I can also say 100 uh, percent that they failed to recognize, <clears throat> excuse me, that we are strong men and women who are committed to the equality in work in our workplaces. We are not easily broken and we stand strong and united. We work tirelessly to eliminate racial, racial and gender disparities. You know, uh, to transfer low wage jobs, transform, I'm sorry, low wage jobs in hospitality, nursing and, 
janitorial services into positions with livable wages. And we're dedicated. We are a dedicated bunch to our uh, expectations that every man and woman who work a full-time job in this state should be able to put a roof over their heads, food on their tables, and shoes on the feet of their own children. Anything less than that is unethical, it's immoral, and as a society, we should be appalled that this is happening here in our state. But I can assure you that, that, you know, that they may have temporarily been us, but they did not break us. Uh, we just strapped on our boots a little tighter, continued supporting each other. The work of labor doesn't begin and end within our workplaces. We're very community-minded. We have a great passion for those who are in need in our communities. We, our work can be seen right here in Louisville through the projects that, that uh, most unions participate in through our membership and unity with the Greater uh, Louisville Central Labor Council. We build homes for our homeless veterans. We partner with Metro United Way to meet the holiday meal uh, needs of families throughout Louisville and surrounding areas. We dedicate ourselves to bringing over 2,000 bikes to children throughout our city with the United States Marine Corps um, Bikes or Bus Program. We provide financial donations to invaluable programs like the Louisville Zoo, Inc., VIP, the Visually Impaired Preschool, Meals for Senior Citizens, and this list goes on and on. But it's through our works, not only in the job place, but also our communities, that new employees see firsthand the importance of union, the value of our work, and want to be a partner of that, a part of that greatness. One last question on labor for you. So, you know, one source of success for Democrats in the recent era has been what, you know, we've kind of called the teachers movement. But in reality, this movement's always included a large number of school support workers, too. And so first, for our listeners who might not know as much about this, you know, um, tell us who these support workers are. And second, how have these workers been an important voice in Kentucky government over the past few years? Well, first I want to thank you for asking that question. I'm truly honored to represent almost 4,000 educational support personnel who are often referred to as the classified employees for JCPS. These men and women are real frontline workers. Um, in every school and central offices of every school district in this state, there are school secretaries, our bookkeepers, our attendance clerks, and receptionists. They're the instructional assistants who are working one-on-one -on -one in small groups with our most vulnerable students um, and the school nurses who ensure that our students with health issues have the required medications needed, but are also nurtured and, and assist students who become ill while at school each day. Our lunchroom ladies and men who provide uh, nourishing meals to our kiddos, uh, whether in person or we've seen it you know, during NTI, they're on those curbsides regardless of weather conditions. You know, we have the, the uh, we have an enormous amount of educational support personnel who work in, in our central office locations, especially operations. They keep our lights on, plumbing, working, roofs from leaking, heating and air systems up and running each and every day. I also have the privilege of representing um, those who do the invaluable work of keeping our technology system going and updated. Uh, the employees in communications and graphic arts, purchasing, grants and awards, curriculum and development, and the Nutrition Service Center on Farmington, where many uh, food items are prepared in, or warehoused and sent to schools on a daily basis. And although I find great, I find great value 
um, in the work they perform. I don't represent the 2,000 bus drivers, truck drivers, custodians, and general maintenance workers. Uh, they're represented by my brothers at Teamsters and SEIU. But many times the, the, the support personnel are the forgotten ones. Uh, we hear over and over about teachers, but I think the public and our electric, uh, elected legislators overlook the work and the uh, resilience of, those, of these working employees. Their love for their students is second to none, but unfortunately they are the lowest paid employees throughout the state of Kentucky. They've been extremely focused and driven in being diligent in reaching out to their state legislators through phone calls and emails and attending rallies and being a voice for their uh, co-workers who often feel forgotten and unheard. They're extremely fearful of losing the pensions in which they've contributed to with each paycheck and how many years they've been employed with the district. I think that uh, what most people do not know is that many of these employees do not make a sustainable wage and rely on a second job to, to put food on their tables. And um, due to COVID, many of them lost that second job and were uneligible, uneligible for, ineligible, I'm sorry, for um, unemployment due to being employed by their school districts. And uh, so they found themselves displaced, homeless, and financially in debt to a degree that they may, ne may never be able to overcome. We need a voice in Frankfurt that has experienced this level of stress and suffering. I've, I've witnessed it firsthand. Um, you know, I've heard their cries, I've seen them silenced, and they're forgotten. And when you think about it, how many times have you heard a school superintendent or a uh, or an elected legislator from either party give mention to the work and sacrifices sacrifices made by the classified employees? The average salary of an educational support personnel in the state of Kentucky is twenty six thousand eight hundred and ninety one dollars, and for a lunchroom lady or man here in Jefferson County. It's $16,774, I'm sorry. We have to do better than this. Yeah, we, we've talked a lot about uh, a lot regarding uh, JCPS over the past couple years. <clears throat> and, I, and I think people across the, this city and the state uh, understand a lot of the challenges that a lot of the teachers have faced. But of course, you know, uh, we do often overlook the classified workers, and that's too bad, and we shouldn't do that. And it's, it is really good uh, to know that they've got uh, a good union that's fighting for them. Um, and, and that, um, you know, at least uh, they, they have that that they can count on. So that 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 is that is good news. And, and thank you for bringing all that to our attention. I mean, some of those numbers are, are things that, <clears throat> you know, we don't know. Uh, we don't realize uh, until you hear them. And, and you know, right. when we were thinking about how rough it is uh, to be a part of the school system right now with all the challenges that they're facing, and then also a lot of the opportunities that, that we have in terms of all the funding that's coming our way, uh, you know, we need to make classified workers a, a bigger part of that conversation for sure. So that's something we'll we'll certainly work on. Uh, but you're running for office in, in the House of Representatives, and uh, there are a lot of things that the, the session has already uh, are taken up. We talked about redistricting, but, you know, they've already started talking about the budget. There's a bunch of other bills that they've passed. Uh, are there any uh, of the bills that, that are making their way through that have caught your eye? And what are some bills and, and what are some issues that you'd like to be a champion for uh, if you make it to Frankfurt in the next session? 
you know, I think we can, well, I think we've all agreed that Senate bills two and three and house bill two was atrocious, unethical and just plain wrong. And it's going to play out in the court systems. And of course we're going to abide by whatever, you know, our courts say, but we all have our personal feelings and opinions about that. Uh, house bill one provides, you know, adequate funding in certain areas of concern for our state. And in some instances, instances more than adequate funding, but it fails to provide for the needs to move Kentucky to a higher level of competitive competitiveness with our, our surrounding states. It fails to invest in Kentucky's future with funding for pre-K, designated raises for public education educators, and much needed infrastructure. We have to remember that you know the federal funding for rebuilding our roads and bridges cannot be used for the Brent Spence uh, Bridge that's owned by Kentucky and falls on our own Kentucky legislators to repair, repair and rebuild. Um, I think there was recently, I think the governor had $250 million built into uh, his budget um, for infrastructure that actually could have been used for that. So it's disheartening that House Bill 1 uh, did not go that far in uh, ensuring that because that's, that's a very important piece to uh, Northern Kentucky. Uh, the lack of specified raises for public educators is, is very concerning. You know, many of the support personnel throughout Kentucky do not have, um, you know, outside of JCPS, do not have contract bargaining agreements with their school districts. And unless there's a specific percentage uh, increase regulated in this budget, it just won't happen for many. I think House Representative Jason Petrie, and others are very out of touch with reality uh, if they truly believe that the school districts all across Kentucky are going to just offer up fair and equitable wage increases to every employee who works in their district. And, you know, he was on uh, KET, I think it was maybe Monday night with Representative Jenkins, and he just, he thinks, okay, we've, we've donated, you know, not donated, I'm sorry, but we've We've allotted this money for transportation and we've allotted it for the seek funds. And so, you know, we, we have, you know, faith that we don't want to override school districts. We want them to make those decisions. But meanwhile, while we're playing this game, we've got hundreds and thousands of vacancies in this district um, that is affecting our children and our students all across Kentucky. And until this state truly represents the value, rec recognizes the value of everyone in this village, we're never going to get these kids out of the gap. So, so you know, I'm, I'm very happy to see the bipartisan work of both the House and Senate in, in passing House Bill 5. You know, it gave much relief. You know, it provided a lot of relief funds um, to those in western Kentucky. House Bill 56 is to be applauded as well as it provides $80,000 in death benefits to families of first responders who died from COVID-related uh, complications. House Bill 121, relating to guest speakers at school board meetings, provides for the voices of parents, commu uh, community members, and, and educators to be heard at our school board meetings. And, and I can support it as long as it provides an exit plan for school board members and, and personnel and those that are sitting in those audiences um, to be able to stop and, 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 you know, for their own safety and, um, you know, to have an exit plan uh, in the event of a disruption that, that could prove to be harmful to anyone in attendance. Uh, I'm a hard no um, to the proposed school vouchers 
in Senate Bill 50 and House Bill 305. You know, they uh, can, they have the potential of taking away as much as $100 million in, in taxpayer dollars each year from the Commonwealth if passed in this legislative session. That money will go to big money donors and corporations through a tax credit instead of into our communities and public schools. Um, I think uh, Representative Buddy Wheatley, he has, uh, he's got a, a bill out there. Um, I have to stop and think about this. I think it might be 49, House Bill 49, although it's not been pulled down yet, um, that will allow, you know, we've got, we've got some real problems in our communities with safety and security and in our state. House Bill, the, the one that Buddy Wheatley has written, and it's got bipartisan uh, support, um, allows those first responders, our police officers, firefighters, EMTs, who have been hired or will be hired, normally it would be into what we call a Tier 3, uh, to be brought back into Tier 2, where they'll have that sustainable pension plan and uh, it's you know, and not have to worry about losing it as we go on with time. It's a real uh, factor in bringing employees back to uh, those positions, and you know, I'd love to see it expanded for educators. See, it seems like you are super knowledgeable about what's going on in Frankfurt. Um, before we let you go, tell us how um, people can get involved and connected with your campaign. Well, they can definitely. Um, Check me out. We've got a website that's coming live uh, probably by the end of this week. It'll be Sue Foster, number four, ky.com. Uh, and then they can also check out my Facebook page at Sue Foster for State Representative. You know, they're definitely going to see me out in the neighborhoods. That's for sure very soon. And um, they're welcome to email me at Sue Foster for State Representative, P.O. Box 33274, Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, 40232 and finally they can also email me at uh, Sue Foster Kentucky Sue Foster KYHR31 at gmail.com All right well Miss Foster thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it You know what thank you for allowing me to uh, join you and to be a guest on your show I, I value this Great. and I value Great. you and your opinion Thank you Jasmine how can people get a hold of us they can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKYPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at Patreon.com slash MyOldKentuckyPodcast. And we have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at TinyLetter.com slash MyOldKentuckyNewsletter. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast Network. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.